Hello, I'm Sean. I'm an academic. And I'm Drew, a director and choreographer. We know it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. An academic and a choreographer walk into a bar. Yes, it sounds like the beginning of the worst joke ever. But our unlikely friendship was born from a shared passion. We believe theatre is the art of collaboration. And that can be hard with many confusing titles and departments. Yes, we have to not only understand what people do, but also why they do it. And that's why we made the Theatre Blueprint podcast. Each episode, I speak to a leading artist in their field. And shed light on the inner workings of their department. There's so much to find out, so let's roll up our sleeves, put on our safety goggles and start digging. You've really committed to this building metaphor, haven't you? Yes, I have. Let's get on with the show. In our next interview, we leap into the unique world of music making, capturing emotional expression in ways words simply cannot. I'm really looking forward to exploring the power and creative process of not only the melody maker, but also hear about the army of clever technicians that are required to bring that score directly to the heart of the story and therefore its audience. I'm so happy to be talking to composer and lyricist Grant Olden to find out more. Welcome to Theatre Blueprint Podcast, Grant. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. So, um, Anybody that might know your work and my work will know that we often work together. So it's really, I'm so excited to be able to uh, talk to you about, you know, probably the things that I don't know. So, you know, I'm very used to having a process with you as a composer um, that, that is uh, kind of hits the ground running. Um, and so I think this is really an exciting opportunity to hear a bit about the kind of process that goes in and, and, and the, some of the things that I perhaps don't know about when we're working on a show together. So perhaps could you start by introducing yourself and telling us uh, what it is that you do and how your job fits within the mechanism of theatre making? Hi, thanks, Drew, yeah. Um... My name is Grant Olding, and I'm, um, I suppose people refer to me as a composer or a musician, but I think I would refer to myself as a collaborative storyteller who happens to use music as their tool to help a group of people tell a story. Um, these days in theatre, and I work in film and TV, and obviously dance as well, um, as a composer, you have to bring many tools to the job and it doesn't just involve writing music or writing dots for people to play. You have to be a producer, a sound engineer, a sample maker, an orchestrator, a lyricist, all sorts of things that, that you do to help bring your part of the story together. But I think the most important thing is understanding what the story is, what the story requires, and the vision of the people trying to make that story and just helping them tell that story. And, and my way of doing that is by using music. I mean, that makes total sense to me. And I think it's, a, that's a really, really brilliant um, articulation of what I, what, why I love working with you is because I, I feel like we very rarely talk about music or dance, but we talk about story um, really right from the beginning. So, would I be right in assuming then that it's the story that leads you into the melody? I mean, I think for somebody like me and perhaps people who are listening to this, I mean, that, that kind of idea of being able to sit and close your eyes and hear something out of nothing. I mean, what is that process like for you? How do you find that melody? I think that it always starts, there's two things it starts with. One is the script, or if, if, if we're doing a, a dance piece, then the scenario. So it tends to be that I read the script first, and I often have a strong reaction to that. Um, 
a, some an, a kind of musical reaction to that. That's that tends to be how I respond to things. I can read a script and I can kind of hear an idea about what that might be, or I can I can kind of see a take on it, a musical take on it. Then I'll have a conversation with the director, and that might radically change what I thought I was going to do. So, for example, I, and, and I, I personally quite often go quite hard on what my initial idea is. And that I think can be quite scary for people because it's quite often a, a, a very specific idea. Um, so for example, I was doing, um, a, I was going for a meeting for a, to, to score a play. I hadn't got the job, a restoration comedy and at the RSC. Now, the, I, I find script reading quite difficult. You know, that it takes me a while to read a script. They're, especially a restoration comedy, you know, quite, can be quite dull. The jokes maybe aren't that funny. You kind of know what the plot is because all restoration comedies basically have the same plot. So, and I've done quite a few restoration comedies. With this particular one, Fantastic Follies of Mrs. Rich, I, I didn't really have any particular anything that came from the um, from the script. I didn't have any particular idea in mind. Met the director, and we started talking. And immediately, she she said, "Okay, we want songs in this, five or six songs for the lead character of of Mrs. Rich, who in the in the original play is not really the lead character, but she would had retitled the play." from the bow defeated to the fantastic follies of mrs rich and wanted to put her front and center and she wanted a kind of um vampy campy kind of cabaret songs for this lead character and that immediately made sense to me and i could completely see that and i felt very at home in that world i'd done i'd done a production of 101 dalmatians a few years earlier where we did exactly the same thing with cruella Deville, gave her five or six cabaret songs which sat at the heart of it and then as i was talking through and i was saying yes this sounds great i had this musical idea just right then and there and i could kind of see four female sax players in full kind of restoration comedy uh garb with the wigs and the, the big dresses and all of this playing their four saxes as if they were a string quartet, but then occasionally breaking out into kind of wild jazz, them and a kind of harpsichord player. And I, I just kind of said this idea and, and she absolutely loved that idea. And that was the idea we stuck with and I got the job and we did the show. But quite often my idea, my first idea won't necessarily be what the director is thinking at all. And so if you've worked with that director before, that's fine. And they can say, ah, it's not, I'm, I'm thinking of something <laughs> a bit more over here. And you can go with that. But sometimes I know that um, I, I come on a bit strong with my first idea and it, it puts people off. But yeah, basically, I have a response to the script and then I have a conversation with the director and that will inform my response to the script. And then it's a case of just trying to dream the music, trying to act, trying to think myself into the play like an actor thinks themselves into a play. So I, I approach it very much as every other department other than music first. I, I think about, I mean, visuals really, really help me. I've got, I've got a very poor imagination when it comes to what things are going to look like on stage. Um, I can't really imagine design or, or costume or anything, but any, anything like that that I can be shown to help me. I, I react very, very strongly to visual stimulus 
and rehearsals and costumes and um, you know um, mood boards and that kind of thing. Um, but I think myself in, in uh, and I think of myself like an actor inside the piece and try to almost improvise emotionally improvise my way into the piece and and i i start to dream melodies and then it's a case of using kind of experience but sometimes those dreams don't happen and then you have to rely on experience and knowledge to just nudge them so i know that if a character is feeling yearning or is aspirational or is feeling strong or is feeling unconfident, then I know certain intervals will work, will be, will suggest that. So those, so I start playing with those intervals in melodies and with different harmonies that I think will, will help. And sometimes that's just exploring, trying every note until you find the right note. And sometimes it's a shorthand that I've built up for myself, little rules that I've built up for myself. And that can just nudge me into a direction of of dreaming up a melody and then it's for me it really is a case of trying every note until I feel like I've got the right collection of notes and the right harmony and, and rhythm behind it and and, and, it, and it's it's always about making sure that it delivers the same thing that everyone else in the whole team is trying to deliver on stage and we're all telling the same story because often you'll write something that feels very good but is just not it's telling a different story to, to to what everyone else is trying to tell who else is it that you that you have to interact with so so once you've once you've come up with the melody and the structure what process does that piece of music go through before it reaches the stage you know how many other people need to input into the material before it becomes live be that you know copyist i mean i think people have heard the idea of an orchestrator and they've heard what an arranger is but what is the difference between those two people there's, there's quite quite a big team i would imagine very much depends on the production um for a lot of the time in theater the the team is just me so a lot of the time I, i'm a multi-instrumentalist as well so a lot of the time i have to do the format in which the music is delivered is a recorded score. So I end up writing the music, playing the instruments, recording it, producing it, and then giving it to the sound designer, often um, designing the way that it will interact with the sound design. So another big part of my job is if I'm delivering a, a, that type of score, which is the most standard score, certainly for a play, um, like the one I've just done for uh, Book of Dust, Belle Sauvage, is when I'm writing the music, right from sitting down, writing, starting with the writing of the music, I have to imagine how it's going to interact with the actors who are going to say their lines at different speeds every night and how the, the pieces of stage action are going to change and, and stretch and contract over time. So I have to... So I have to, in order to keep it relevant to what's happening on stage, I have to construct pieces of music in what what you might call stems. Um, and there's two there's two forms that those stems can take, but basically it involves layering of of, of cues, layering of music, so that a piece of music is split down into different sections and different 
channels as it were so you can take and so there's that kind of technical thing that has to go on as well that's the score i do most is the one where it's just me then there's scores where it might be there may be songs it may be a musical in musicals you tend to have an orchestrator and it tends to be that my job as composer or composer lyricist would be to provide a piano vocal score which an orchestrator will then interpret into um, parts for a, for a band to play. Now, I tend to do my own orchestrations and with copyists as well. What, ha what happens is I, I tend to put it into the computer myself and arrange the music and then arrange it for the instruments and then hand it out. Maybe there'll be a copyist at the end who will come along and make um, do things like make page turns um, straightforward for the for the band make sure that I've you know just give it give it a look over make sure I've not forgotten that an instrument is a transposing instrument or I've I've written an arrange that's too high or too low for an instrument that's a, a copyist will come along and just have a look over it and do that make sure that you know it, it's as readable as possible that's a copyist's job is to make sure that when we sit down at the first band call the musicians can read it with as little barrier between them and the music as possible, uh, because time is obviously massively of the essence. Um, then when we get to working with, with, a, with an orchestra on something like uh, Merlin, we've just done a ballet, there's more people in the team. So again, it starts with me making music. In, in that case for an orchestra, again, I just wrote the music straight into the scoring program and that's how that exists. The copyist does the same jobs before, but it's on a much, much larger scale because there's a lot more instruments and a lot more musicians and, and a lot more page turns and in, in a full length ballet. And then you have another collaborator, which is your music director or your conductor. Their job basically is to interrogate, interrogate me and interrogate the music. And that literally takes the form of, do you mean, is that the, the note you meant to write? Why did you write this note? What phrase, how do you hear this? And it, it can be, um, the, the note, the questions can be very musical and very technical, or they can be very interpretative and very much about imagery and what do, what do you see when you hear this, this note? Or, or they can, it, it quite often is they say, can you sing this to me? And then you sing it and they can interpret the phrase marks that, you've, that you, you, you're singing and then they can compare it with what you've written. So those are the kind of teams that you work with. Now, Arranger and orchestrator is a really, really interesting question. And again, it very much depends on the project and on the medium because arranger and orchestrator in theatre means a very different thing to arranger and orchestrator in film and TV. An orchestrator in film is more what we would call a copyist in theatre. An orchestrator in, in film will do what I've described a copyist does. They'll make the parts legible for the for the players schedules are very very tight in film it can be that some composers write a slightly more generalized for example string parts they might write something that isn't as detailed as it would need to be on the on the paper not not that the notes will be made up by the copyist but that, that how those notes are laid out across the string section for example that would be an orchestrator's job an arranger i think of an arranger as the process being composition which is writing it on like a piano score, writing the piano, the tune, the melody, the, the accompaniment, the rhythm. Then I think of the arrangement as being arranging that across the instruments. Then I think of the orchestrators putting that into 
form that the musicians can play easily. But then when you come to musicals, you also have things like dance arrangers, vocal arrangers, and all these, and I think, and music supervisors. And to be honest, it's all a little bit up for grabs. What one music supervisor will do, a music director will do on a different project, and the composer will do on a different project. So it's very much, it depends. But for me, it tends to be that I do most of the stuff myself. I don't have a regular team. I really enjoy collaborating with a music director. When I get to work on a project that has a musical director, I love that. And I, and working with musicians is, is fantastic. It doesn't always happen. So it, it's it's often just a, a one-man band type of thing. And do you find that, like, as the composer, you set the tone of what you want from your team? Or is it very much kind of... Because are you always in charge of who that team is? Or is that put together by the director and the producer? Yeah. You know, sometimes you... Some, it, either or. Sometimes you get to choose your team. And sometimes that team is already in place. Maybe a director has worked with a musical director before they want to use. And, and maybe they're on the project before you're on the project. Um, same with an orchestrator or a, a lyricist. Or a, it can be, sometimes it's you and sometimes it's not. But it's not that you have to lead the project. But you have to, again, just make sure you're all telling the same story. And that sometimes takes a while. That can take a few cues or a few days or a few weeks of working together until everyone understands what you expect of them and everyone understands your style and, and what the style of this particular piece of, of music is you're trying to create. And there's no real way of doing that, I don't think, other than just trial and error and you you, you, you try something and you go, ah, that's not quite, you know, it's, it's, and then it becomes about how effectively you can give notes. And, you know, we know that's, that's key for me. And certainly as a composer, when I'm working with a director, how quickly they listen to something is the first thing that is the most important thing to me, because I need, if I can get feedback immediately, that makes a huge difference to my stress levels. Um, because even if it's completely wrong, I've made something that's completely inappropriate and terrible. Um, if I can be told that immediately, that's fantastic because I can then move on. And then the second thing is how clear the notes are. They never need to be musical notes. I prefer it when they're not musical notes, as in that chord needs to be a minor chord. But if they can be notes that inspire me, that tell me immediately what direction I need to go in or why the direction I've gone in is the wrong direction, then you can quickly get to the place you need to get to without too many revisions. So I have to then take on that role with my team and make sure that if it's not sounding the way I expect it to sound in my head, that I can I can think up words that will make them understand what I meant. Or sometimes you listen to something and it's not what you expected, but it's better. Or you like the way that's going. Or sometimes it's just you go, well, I, that's that's that person's interpretation of it. And you know what? That's fine. It's not what I had in my mind, but that is a perfectly valid interpretation of it. You go in that direction. That's fine. And we're still kind of basically traveling in the same direction. For anyone who's listened to this, who thinks they might be interested in getting into, you know, creating melodies and songs and, and working their music into theatre, how did you get into it? And what advice would you give for somebody who's wanting to get into it? Well, I had a strange route into it. I'm not sure. Well, maybe everyone has a strange route into it. I don't think there is one route into it. My brother was, is very musical and had a kind of blaggit attitude, which I inherited. So growing up, I was always happy to pick up an instrument and give it a go. And I never felt like I wouldn't be able to get a sound out of it. So we had instruments in the house. We had a home organ. 
which I did take a couple of years of lessons on. I had about six months of flute lessons. I had a guitar, I had a drum set. We had a clarinet that I pretended, you know, I, I, I remember I, I was a child actor and I remember going for auditions and, and saying that I played the clarinet and I didn't play the clarinet and I got asked to play the clarinet and I had to, I blagged it and I played, I, I had a week to learn the clarinet and I taught myself to play Dave Brubeck's Take Five, which is an extraordinary thing to try and do in a week. I taught myself one scale and Take Five and I turned up and played this clarinet, which I told the director was made of wood and it wasn't, it was made of plastic. I told him it was made by Yamaha and it wasn't. And I was such a blagger that when he said, when, because he played, this director played the clarinet and he brought his clarinet along. And when, when I played this clarinet in front of a room full of other kids auditioning for other roles in this TV thing, and I was, it was terrible, Drew. It was, it squeaked all over the place. It was dreadful. And I was such a blagger that when he said, maybe you should try holding the clarinet a little bit further away from your body, I said, I really, because my teacher says, you have to hold it. I mean, I'd pick, I'd literally, we'd found this in a car boot sale the week before and I picked it up and started playing. So I had, I was always, I guess I was fairly, I had a good ear. I think I had a, quite a good ear for music. I could hear music. I, I could sing and I could hear harmony. And I taught myself to play these instruments and I was an actor and that was it. And I went through college. I trained to be an actor. I was at Central School of Speech and Drama and I had bands and I was writing music for bands and all of that and singer songwriter stuff. And I, I would always alternate between acting and wanting to be a singer songwriter or being in a punk band. And we, I ended up in um, Miss Saigon for a couple of years acting in Miss Saigon in the chorus and while I was there, I wrote a musical with my dresser. And that, that was the thing I always wanted to do is I wanted to be, wanted to write musicals. And I wrote a musical with my dresser. It's a really, really, really bad musical. And um, which was not only bad, but unproducible. And we sent it around to lots of people and no one was interested, obviously, <laughs> because it was really bad, it was a terrible idea. Except one, one person, um, the Bridewell Theatre, which was at that point was a producing theatre company, and they were known for doing new musical, new music, basically new American musicals. They were the first people to do Jason Robert Brown, Michael John Lacusa, um, Adam Gettle. So they did they did all of this amazing stuff. This is in about two thousand and three. They did all this amazing stuff that hadn't been done in Europe before, let alone in the UK. A real visionary there called Clive Paget, and he heard he ran the theatre and he heard this musical and he said, "Well, we're not going to do it, but do you want to come in and spend a couple of days rewriting? Let me see how how you'll like it rewriting." And I rewrote. We we went for a couple of days and we rewrote bits of it. And he liked what I I was just writing the music. I wasn't writing the lyrics. He liked what I was doing with the rewriting it, and he created a post for me at the theatre of resident composer and found a tiny bit of money and got me to run their youth theater and paid me that way and gave me a piano, you know, it gave me a space with a piano in it in the theater and, and commissioned me to write like three musicals for them for, and scores for their, for their lunchtime productions and all that kind of stuff. And I basically learned on the job and I taught myself at that point to read and write music. I've always been quite good at looking at something, taking it apart and seeing how it works. So that, that again was my process. I, I, I got some sheet music of people that wrote similar stuff to me. So I would take someone like William Finn, who I absolutely adored as a, as a songwriter, as a musical theatre songwriter. I would look at his accompaniment figures 
play them, listen to them, look at how they looked on the paper, make my own songs, and then make them look like his looked on the paper. And that was my process about, about learning to read and write music. And then I learned orchestration again on the job. I, I started then working with directors because they were coming into the theatre and, and, and working with me. And, and then Clive uh, went off to work at the National Theatre Studio, and he took me with him to start developing musicals there. And from there, I got introduced to the head of music at the National Theatre. And before, within a couple of years of me starting out, I was writing um, music for plays at the National Theatre and just learning on the job. It's a very, very lucky way in. It's an extraordinarily lucky way in to my job, working with a few key people who absolutely believed in me and believed I had something worth saying, who nurtured me and told me off and taught me things that I, I mean I still have Clive sitting on my shoulder now every day when I write going yes not quite not quite good enough you know he, I, I the lessons that he taught me especially when it comes to writing musical theatre I absolutely still live by and then to go from that to collaborating with um, Nick Heitner at the National Theatre which which was my my route into the National Theatre Again, working on a very small play with him, just a couple of tiny little songs, and that, that led to doing more music for him. My advice would be try and get in a room with people who are better than you and just listen to them. It doesn't matter what their department is, because you're all in, you're all just making theatre. It doesn't matter what your job is. You're just, you're all there trying to tell the story. Actually, now I think about it, Clive, Clive Paget, my mentor, who took a chance on me at the beginning, worked at Goldsmiths for he was uh, he he worked there for a couple of years when i first worked with nick heitner who is another person who just took a massive chance on me and believed in me and kept using me and is now my kind of most frequent collaborator when i first worked with him um jeremy sams i was speaking to jeremy sams and he said you're going to work with nick for the first time just listen to everything he has to say he knows more about music than any of us and I did. And I, and I would just try and be in the room every day as much as I could be in the rehearsal room where, where the piece was being constructed and just watch, watch how a great director gives notes. Watch how a director blocks a scene. Watch how a lighting designer can change the mood of a scene instantly with, just by putting a different gel on it. You know, I had a, a kind of complex for a long time about not having trained to be a composer and then some years into calling myself a composer which took that was quite a big step anyway just calling myself a composer didn't feel like I was able to do that but a few years in I realized that actually I've been training to do this job my whole life as a child actor and then as an adult actor and then as a composer and the place I felt most comfortable was in a rehearsal room and, I, and that's the thing that I understood was being in a rehearsal room with a group of actors and director trying to make a piece, interpreting the script. That's what I felt most comfortable doing. And that I realized was actually something that a lot of composers were very uncomfortable with. They felt comfortable at the piano or behind their computer, but actually being in the room with a director, having a conversation. So that's that would be my advice was get in a room with, with great people and contribute. Listen, take apart what they do and make suggestions. And don't ever feel like your job is just, I've got to write these notes because 
everyone's job is much, much more than their department. And in this world of collaborative storytelling, the best idea is the best idea. And it doesn't matter where that idea comes from. If you're working with, with, with good collaborators, they'll take, they'll take that idea and use it. I think that's, um, that's applicable to anybody wanting to get into any area of the industry, that idea of understanding where you sit within the process and being able to learn from people who, are, who aren't necessarily even speaking in your language, but you know, all coming from the same instinct. I think that's, that's incredibly relevant. Grant, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Um, it's just been so amazing. And there's so much that I've learned about you today that like, I can't believe I didn't know um, over the many years that we've been working together. So uh, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, I really, really do appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Drew. Grant's full of contradictions. I really enjoyed it because he talks about not having a clue visually and yet all he does is paint pictures. And his part, his way of composing is to imagine the scene, how someone's gonna look, how they're dressed. It's extraordinary. So I love the fact that he starts with himself saying what he's bad at. And when I was listening to you talking to him, I was thinking, well, it's okay, because I want you to be a really good composer, which he is. <laughs> <laughs> but actually then he started to talk and I was like, oh, you're really good at visualization as well. Isn't that true of all of us as artists? We're very quick to apologise for the thing that we think that we're not good at. Um, but actually, we it's all about communicating an idea. And, and you, know, as, you know, as it's very clear with the interview, Grant and I are great friends and have worked together a long time. So I really enjoyed this interview to be able to hear from him. But even when he was saying about things he thought he wasn't good at, I was like, mm, I, no, that's not true. Like, yeah. for, as a collaborator, I know that's not true. I know that you're very, very visual and, and a brilliant storytelling communicator. And I loved how respectful he is of um, the people that have assisted him and that, those acknowledgements. And that, I thought it was really powerful when he was talking about um, some of the people that had nurtured and encouraged him to move forward. Yeah, those generational gifts, I mean, that's just golden, isn't it? And the, the respect to what comes before and the respect of what's coming next, you know, that's that felt very present in our conversation and, from him. And I feel really sure that that's something he's carrying forward in the way that he's going to support other people. But also he pointed to ways that he'd been given feedback. Um, and there's, there's one part which I just loved where he's basically just been told to make it better. And it's so non-specific, and and it's a real testament, I think, that that's what you need is that permission to just go and make it better, start again, make it better. But make it better in, on your terms. I think it's very different to receiving notes where the person giving the note is very clearly trying to get you to do a thing that's in their mind or their imagination, as opposed to giving you the permission again, giving you that sort of platform from which you can make the work better on your own terms. I think that's a really valid lesson. And it's, I suppose it's the way it's said, because if if it's said and it clearly was said in the way of, I know you can do much better, I, I don't know what that's going to be, then that's got to inspire that person to move forward. And I think it made me reflect on how bad some of the criticism is in, in the theatre industry. And you're right, it becomes about minutiae rather than actually make it holistically better. Well, it does sound around taste, doesn't it? You know, a lot of the critical response or feedback is based on the person's taste. And so I think as any working practitioner, you have to be able to um, 
have an understanding of the viewpoint of the person giving the information and how you want to find a way of respecting everybody's viewpoint, obviously. But if you're trying to be, create something of clear vision, you do sort of need to be quite um, careful with whose guidance that, that uh, you're welcoming into the process and at what point you're welcoming that guidance in. I think that's that that is definitely something I've experienced and learning as I as I go through my career is about being able to be really protective of the process and protective of the end product and yet have the egoless ability to be able to welcome in opinion but not be damaged by the opinion depending on when the opinion is given. The, the dance artist Liz Lerman who came up with her way of giving and receiving feedback and putting the artist more in control of the timing and also what and I, I think that that's really crucial and all of that for me points to the key skill and way of working which is around collaboration that it is understanding that every person in the process that's needed for a piece of theatre to come together has their own skill set and respecting those different genres and knowing that you and perhaps it does come back to Grant saying I'm not a visual person because he knows somebody in that team is better than him at that part of it so understanding respecting it and then allowing the collaboration to move forward it's sort of a miracle that theatre ever happened, isn't it? When you think about the timing that's required for everybody to be able to arrive at a point at the same time, it's sort of miraculous, and yet it happens over and over again um, to very different degrees of intimacy and, and I guess, success. I mean, let's not get into what success actually is, but, you know, that that it is miraculous and it requires so many people's willingness to be able to receive feedback at the, at the important and vital times. And respect each other and let go, allow somebody to be the specialist in the room. Which is really hard sometimes. I'm just thinking of the times where I haven't let go of my need to try and control something. But actually what are you losing? You're losing something massive if you don't allow somebody to know better than you and to have that better skill set. Each week I ask our guests the same question and this is my favourite bit. I ask them, what does theatre mean to you and why is it important? I think, well, what sets theatre apart from everything else is two things. A group of people coming together to experience a story. The audience and the actors and the creative team, they all make the piece together. I don't think a piece of theatre exists until the audience are there. Until then, it's an exercise. But the audience makes up the final piece of the puzzle and, and how they respond absolutely has an impact a great actor will land a gag a different way depending on how the audience are feeling that night the same as a great musical director will take a song at a different tempo depending on if he thinks the audience are flagging a bit and he needs to pep it up and give it a bit more energy we'll take the song at a slightly quicker tempo tonight and so that feeling of it of us all together experiencing the same story all contributing to it so if the audience are a different audience the songs are at a different tempo if the songs are at a different tempo the story is different if if an audience laughs at that line and then they don't the next night it's a completely different experience you know if you see a, a production or you see a play a, a well-known play and you see different productions of it it's it's entirely different every every night and not just the production but every performance is different so there's two things one is just that sense of being together to make a thing, to experience it together, 
is absolutely unlike. There's no other art form that quite does that. There's no other art form that quite listens to the audience in the same way that theatre does. So if I go and see a gig, the band on stage can decide that they can just ignore the audience if they want to. They can just play their songs. If we're playing it at this tempo and that's it, we just, we do our thing and that's it. But it doesn't work that there's a contract between an audience and a, a, and a cast and a, a group of theatre makers that mean we have to come together to make this thing. We buy into, that's why I think when you see a play or a piece of theatre that's not very good, makes you really angry. Whereas if you see a film that's not very good, yeah, that was a wasted an hour, whatever, I wasted an hour and a half, whatever, I've forgotten about it, I've moved on. But if I see a play that I really, that I didn't like, I've, I've made such a commitment to that piece and to making the piece with the actors on stage. And I get so angry about, you know, they didn't, that, that didn't work for me. And why didn't it work for me? It, somehow theatre matters more. And, and also you'll find that a lot of playwrights will save their, their, their good ideas. I remember um, hearing Ronald Harwood talk about this on the radio, saying that he saved all his good ideas for theatre. And the other stuff he would do in film, but his the important ideas he would use in theatre. And I think partly that was because his his voice as writer could come through the strongest with the least filters in theatre. The other thing about theatre that makes it obviously unique and important is that it only happens once. It happens live. It's not some. It's it's not, we can we can recreate it in the cinema. We can watch a, a recorded performance. It's interesting. But the actual act of theatre happens once in that room. You've got to be present and you've got to be paying attention. You can't rewind. You can't go make a cup of tea. You have to be, it's, it's an active act from everyone involved. And I think that, and you can feel that energy. So I think it's the, it's the only form where it requires everyone in the room, whether you're making it, whether you're watching it, to be absolutely engaged and energetically engaged with it for it to properly work. It's important. It's, it's always been, it's the way we've always told stories. It's primal. It's the way we learn. We can learn by watching television and film, of course, but there's something about being in a room with a group of other people all learning the same thing and all going through the same experience and not being able to divert yourself, not being able to turn over or pause or that commitment, I think, is what makes theatre special. You've been listening to a Scratch Post production made in collaboration with the Pony Company and Goldsmiths University of London. Music by Andre Rossi made available via upbeat.io. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you want to know about the theatre industry. You can interact with us at Blueprint Podcasts on Instagram and subscribe for our next episodes.